Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast dedicated to uncovering and discovering the stories, lessons, and insights to help you be the hero of your own story. This podcast is brought to you by Reality Smash, a transformational studio that empowers purpose-driven entrepreneurs with disruptive technologies like ChatGPT and virtual reality to generate more revenue and create greater impact. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. What up? On today's podcast, I have an amazing guest. If you are interested in using psychedelics in terms of treatment and therapy, or if you're interested in Burning Man, you may have heard of Zendo Project, you may have heard of MAPS. Well, on today's podcast, I have Sarah Gale. She is a psychedelic therapist and educator. She began her journey at MAPS in 2012 with the Zendo Project. She served as the MAPS Director of Harm Reduction and the Harm Reduction Training and Education Coordinator. She's contributed to the development of the Zendo Project training curriculum and has facilitated psychedelic peer-supported workshops worldwide. So without any delay, I'd like to welcome Sarah. Hey. Hello, Dylan. Hi. Hi. I'm so excited to have you on here. Um, It's it's been a minute. I've been trying to, uh, we've been going back and forth for a little bit. So thank you for coming on to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. How are you doing today? I am doing pretty well. Yeah, it's a beautiful winter day here in Boulder, Colorado. And um, yeah, I got some teaching that I'm doing today and just working. So yeah, things are going well. That's awesome. Have you always lived in Boulder? It it seems like the place to be for kind of some of the work that you do. Uh, Yeah, so I've lived in Boulder for about 14 years. I came here for grad school, but I'm originally from Taos, New Mexico. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I feel like it's it's really interesting to watch people group up in different areas. There's like Austin, Texas, there's Boulder, Colorado, there's San Francisco, there's different places where people um, kind of congregate around uh, like-minded activities and such. Um, yeah. have, have you seen it? Have you seen living in Boulder there? Is there a synergistic effect of the work that you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think for a long time for people coming to Boulder, it's kind of been a place where it used to be, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And with that, bringing Europa, where I went to graduate school, um, it's always been a bit of a center for, um, you know, a, a place where people, I think, have gravitated who are um, interested in big ideas, and especially therapy and healing. And I think with the you know, emergence of the psychedelic renaissance, there's definitely been a lot of people who um, gravitate to Colorado, to Boulder and Denver, a lot happening here with, uh, with decrim, uh, psychedelic decriminalization. And yeah, so I definitely found Boulder is just a wonderful place. We have a, a site here, a Boulder MDMA PTSD site, that's a MAPS uh, study site that we've been doing some of the MDMA research at over the past decade. So uh, yeah, that's what I've been up to over here. That's awesome. Yeah, the, the psychedelic renaissance. That's a, it's an amazing term. And it's interesting, too, because there is like this. There's like two cultures going on. Right. So there's this culture that drugs are bad, so scramble your brain and all that, that old kind of way of thinking. Right. And then there's also this culture where we know that there are a number of benefits that these types of um, uh, medicines can have. And I would love to just from the, cause I have like, you know, anecdotal information, right? I have, I have like that kind of stuff. I love from just a scientific clinical point of view, what are the current state of affairs 
um, with uh, uh, psychedelics being used as a treatment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think as you speak to culture, it's important also for us to be aware that these medicines have been used for thousands of years in many different cultures for, you know, therapeutic and healing potentials. And so for sure in our specific, in the West, in our culture, there's been a lot of misinformation and stigma around psychedelics, um, all connected and related to the war on drugs. Um, and so for, yeah, for definitely the greater half of, you know, this past century. Um, and, but I think it's also, important to recognize that for many thousands of years before that, you know, that these certain medicines, especially plant medicines, right, not so much the synthesized ones, but the plant medicines have been used by many different cultures and communities throughout time. And so I think it's like, um, in the West, you know, sometimes we need to catch up. And I think uh, psychedelics is one of those areas where um, I think that there's been a lot of waking up and awareness of the potential of these medicines. And so I work specifically with MDMA assisted therapy mm -hmm. for PTSD. Um, and I also have experience working with in ketamine assisted therapy. So, um, you know, I have that clinical work and I've also worked and I know we'll talk about today, the more peer support work in the more you could call recreational spaces like Burning Man. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been really amazing in the past. I've been in this field for about a decade and I've really in the past, especially few years, five years, that um, this work, you know, beginning to become more we call mainstreaming, right, where it's becoming more recognized amongst the mainstream, including um, the public, as well as uh, therapists, psychiatrists, um, researchers, and scientists for, you know, the potential therapeutic value. And it's really interesting when I first got into this work, you know, straight out of grad school and I tell people what I'm doing and they'd be like, oh, okay, so you're working with drugs. And, you know, there was still a lot of stigma around it and um, people didn't quite understand, um, you know, that's a generalization. Obviously there's a lot of people who were really open to that, but I've just seen that really shift now when I talk to people about what I do, um, there's so much more um, interest and people are, are connecting it with the work that they're seeing out there in the papers and in the news when they hear about things like psilocybin assisted therapy for the treatment of depression or end of life with psilocybin. Um, you know, so we have MDMA PTSD. There's research being, a lot of research being done um, with ketamine uh, specifically for depression. And so I think that what we're finding is that, yeah, a lot of these uh, psychedelics are helpful for certain specific you could call, you know, certain diagnoses or certain what we call indications in the therapy field. Um, and I really do think that we're moving towards a, a future where um, uh, Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, talks about this a lot, where we're going to hopefully see spaces and clinics as well as community healing centers where people can come to receive treatment for a variety of um, things that they're struggling with, but also hopefully eventually for um, human optimization and, and you know, helping uh, spiritual growth and just general um, growth and transformation too. So I think there's like the, in this culture, and I think that we've needed to kind of focus on how psychedelics can be applied to mental health specifically. But I also see that there's a lot, um, you know, in the coming down that's going to be focused also on um, benefit optimization and, and uh, human optimization, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's always interesting to me. It's, it, it seems to be that foot in the door style of first using this quote unquote taboo substances to, to treat the sick and then to enhance the healthy. 
right? And that seems to be the, the pathway, even though we know that there's there's benefits on both sides of it. There seems to be that that pathway, the the steps and the progress to say, look, if it, the end of life, right, in a very um, special moment in people's time, right? It's a very powerful situation, and there's there and there has been some interesting studies around the benefits of psilocybin for uh, assisting in the end of life moments, and I mean, very rare, uh, not rare, but very um, special moments in time. Where do you think we're currently at? If you're, if you're, if you like draw a through line of going from the the end vision of there's sites all over the place and people can go and just go and enhance themselves and be the best version of self by using these types of um, uh, treatments, um, and versus completely criminalized and taboo and you can't talk about it. Where do you think we're at on that timeline horizon? Hmm. Yeah, I think it's really close. I mean, I think that. Uh, I see it as exponential, like the growth that I've seen in the past few years. And that when I talk to my other colleagues in this work, you know, it's really exponential. And I think it's that kind of, what do they call the hundredth monkey effect thing too, right? Where it's like, as more and more people become aware of it, it really, um, it's it's starting to gain a lot of momentum. And so, you know, it's it's interesting because you you just talked about kind of that, that shift and needing to, you know, first work with science and with um, these studies. Um, and I think that a lot of people, you know, while these psychedelics are very, are, are seen to be, you know, potentially helpful for a variety of different things. I think that a lot of people who have been working in the field for a while, it's kind of like, we've known, people have known that these are potentially helpful, but we almost, we need kind of science to prove it. And in, especially in the West, you know, science is our religion, so to speak. And so oftentimes I think psychedelic research yeah. is, is kind of, it's interesting because on one hand, it's really important, right? For us to see what are the potential applications to support people who are truly suffering, right? And then on the other hand, a lot of people who've been exploring and using psychedelics for decades, um, you know, are kind of like, well, yeah, of course that this is helpful for that or you know if you talk about maybe people who are down in um in south america using you know and working with ayahuasca or other mm-hmm. plant medicines and sitting in dietas it's like well yeah of course this is useful and so now we're seeing all of this research you know going into the this potential work and so it's, it's just it's the culture that we're in right now mm-hmm. um but yeah to circle back around to your question i think that you know it's it's here and we're seeing as psychedelics enter into um, you know, more of this collective consciousness on a broader scale, we're seeing where it's butting up against those existing stigmas and those existing taboos that are still very much a part of our society and our culture. And so I think that oftentimes, and you've seen this with the psychedelic research is the the sort of limiting factor continues to be drug policy and um, regulation and, you know, these old draconian laws that we have around um, uh, you know, prohibitionist uh, um, approaches to um, drugs and drug re- regulations. So that's what has curbed so much of the research over so many years. You know, it's been a 36 year, almost 37 year old year process for MAPS to finally get to the stage where we're at with the MDMA assisted therapy, where we've just, you know, we're submitting our data for phase three and to the FDA to hopefully get this approved for the treatment of PTSD. And it's like, that's so many years. And it it's because of the laws around these substances. Uh, yeah. One, uh, thank you for uh, keeping up the good fight for us. Uh, 37 years, I know there's a lot of sideline people that are going, 
go for it. Keep fighting. We appreciate it. You know, and being able to actually push these things through because we do know, again, anecdotally that there is benefits, um, but it takes a lot of effort, and a lot of work to try to change, especially these regulations and uh, big businesses to make this happen. And can you just describe uh, for me and the audience, you talked about it being a phase three approval. What's what's phase one, phase two, and why is phase three such a big deal? Yeah. Yeah. So in this first phase three trial with MAPS, it's a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. I know that's a lot of <laughs> words. Um, uh, and it's really looking at the application of MDMA specifically for PTSD. Um, and so those results, you know, we had a, a bigger number of people that we saw in the phase three trial um, versus phase two. And um, so in the phase two trial, we're really looking at um, phase one and two clinical trials are often really looking at safety and efficacy. So um, and then phase three is often taking that what's been established for safety and efficacy in phase one and phase two and bringing that out to more, you know, a bigger um, group of, of uh um, the population. So I, that's, you know, in a, in a short way of saying it, that's some of the difference between phase one and phase two. Um, and our phase uh, three clinical trial was completed in November of uh, 2022. And the next step in this is analyzing the data from the study. Um, and those results will hopefully be announced soon after the data has been analyzed and compiled. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. And then ideally then that would be, you know, FDA, go through FDA approval. Yeah. So then with the FDA approval, once it gets to phase three, then uh, then they're allowed to have it. Is it um, the benefits of that? It opens up distribution or how does that? So then after, um, so if the FDA approves MDMA assisted therapy for market use, then the DEA subsequently has like some amount of days, I think 90 days to reschedule the MDMA drug product. Um, so that would put us into commercial use sometime in 2024, most likely. Yeah. So it's essentially a rescheduling and this is, it's important to state that this is, you know, this has never been done before. There's never been a drug combination with therapy because it's not just the drug. It is the MDMA assisted therapy and the FDA is not in the business of therapy, right? They're in the business of drug approval. So, um, you know, this is really, this therapy is really structured to facilitate the, the participant, um, inner healing intelligence and their ability to, um, you know, the ability for the mind to heal itself. And um, I can talk more about kind of the mechanisms by which it works. But yeah, so it's like, it's a very, it's a very new thing for the FDA to be, um, you know, looking at this, uh, you know, this specific investigation mm -hmm. treatment. Yeah, and it was designed under a special protocol assessment with the FDA. Um, and uh, yeah. So it's, it's an exciting time. I love it. So, so before we go into the into the deeps of the protocols and all that, I'd first love to just kind of rewind just a little bit and talk about what was your journey to, you, you said that, you know, you left grad school and you jumped into this. Um, what caused you to do that? Was there a moment in time or something that happened that had you to cause that shift to pursue this path? Mm, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I always with, you know, with my story, it's kind of like, well, where to begin, right? Because I think for all of us, if we look at the narrative of our lives and the arc of our lives, oftentimes we can see the beginning or the seeds of things very kind of early on. Um, and so, yeah, I think for me, um, 
I, uh, so I explored with psychedelics when I was younger, when I was in my teens, I grew up, um, I think I said in Taos, New Mexico. And, um, and so that was, you know, part of my journey as a young one and my exploration. And then later on, not at the time, but later on really recognized that um, those experiences as really um, transformational in my experience and very formative for me really kind of um, helped me see the world in a, in a more expanded way, helped me see myself and recognize um, myself in, you know, just learn more about how I worked and how others worked. And um, so that was a very, uh, those were very powerful experiences for me. Um, at the time, I was, I wasn't aware that the you know, psychedelic therapy was a thing and that these medicines had been researched in the 60s. Um, I just was, uh, you know, a young person who was exploring and so, um, yeah, so that was, uh, you know, my younger experiences. And then I actually went to study environmental science. I was very, from a young age, had a passion for wanting to work with the environment and help to heal, you know, the environmental crisis. And then I really started to realize in my undergrad how much that the issues that we were having with our environment were not obviously environmental issues. They were human caused issues, but I started to recognize for me, the connection that I made was that the environmental crisis was actually a crisis of consciousness and that, you know, when humans are disconnected from one another and when they're disconnected from the environment, that um, this is ultimately um, a, cri you know, a crisis of the mind, a crisis of, you could say, the soul or the spirit where there's a disconnection there. And, you know, because a healthy organism doesn't destroy its home, right? We see that in nature. Like when something is in a state of health and wellness, it doesn't typically destroy the very thing that's keeping it alive. And so I started to make those connections and I, I decided at a certain point in my undergrad and when I was deciding to go to grad school that what I actually wanted to study and what I actually wanted to, to put my focus on was in um, you know helping to heal and and attend to uh, human consciousness. And so I found the transpersonal counseling psychology program at Naropa and yeah. That's really interesting. What I love about that is you you kind of looked at the, from what I'm hearing, you went to like the root cause. It's okay, I wanna heal the planet. What's the problem with the planet? People, what's the problem with the people? The crisis of consciousness. How do I help with the crisis of consciousness? Well, I know that this has been somewhat effective for me so let's see if I can kind of help and have greater impact for other people. Is that the through line of what I'm tracking in, this, in what you're saying to the degree? Yeah. I mean, I think that when I first started, it is. Yeah. And when I first started studying psychology, I didn't quite yet make the connection of like psychedelics. It was almost like I was studying and, and um, then I, I met some colleagues, connected with some colleagues, and I really started to learn actually about how psychedelics had been used historically and also how they were being now currently applied in, in research settings and um, clinical settings. And so then I was like, I made the connection there and I was like, oh, this is, this is happening. This is something that I really want to get involved in. And at that time, there were very few opportunities to get involved in psychedelic research or therapy. And I was just, you know, just uh, lucky enough, I guess you could say, to meet some amazing mentors who kind of brought me under their wing and brought me to Burning Man, where I met Rick, and um, you brought me onto the study, the MDMA study in Boulder. And yeah, so um, I'm very grateful for, I've had a lot of mentors and teachers in this field that have been very instrumental um, for me in working in this. 
But that's that is the story of mankind, though, really, is like you have mentors that kind of give you a path and then you you help along the way and then you create opportunities and mentor for other people to, to kind of facilitate and kind of have what your intentions are impact and grow. And that's why I love the segueing into what we're talking about here, uh, the cultural genesis of Zendo, the Zendo project. I'd love to dive into that a little bit, talking about how took all this knowledge and maps and then what that evolved into or the genesis over at the Zendo project at Burning Man for people that don't know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, so the Zendo project is a, a space and um, it's also not just a physical space, but it's also an entire approach uh, and philosophy to working with challenging psychedelic experiences, specifically in um, recreational settings like events and festivals. And it's really based in a foundation of compassion and listening and just what we call in the field holding space for each other. Um, and it is it has some guiding principles of the work. And essentially, I like to sort of um, position it in relation to what we might say is the opposite approach for dealing with challenging experiences. So sometimes when we think about, and this is becoming more, more and more people becoming aware of this, when we think about people who are having a challenging experience, we think about those kind of worst case scenarios, right? They end up, they're just having a, a difficult time and they end up getting escalated, whether it's interactions with law enforcement or medical or, um, you know, security, they're at an event or concert or something like that, running around, take off their clothes, yelling, right? People in psychedelic states, it's a state of ego dissolution. It can get pretty wild. And so um, we think sometimes of the very unskillful ways of addressing those. And so with Zendo, um, the intention really is that a lot of these challenging experiences are easy to work with, easy to de-escalate, um, and that through some simple practices, a lot of which have been adopted from psychedelic-assisted therapy, that we can support people in these experiences. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, I first went to Burning Man in 2012, and one of my mentor mentors, um, Marcela Otalara, who is the principal investigator for the Boulder site, uh, she asked me if I wanted to go to Burning Man and told me that it was the first year that they were um, uh, creating this project called the Zendo Project. And so that was the Zendo Project's first years in 2012. And so um, I had no idea what harm reduction was, what peer psychedelic peer support was, and I went. And at that time, MAPS had been doing psychedelic peer support for actually about 20 years prior to that they'd actually been doing work at other festivals, actually working at Burning Man. But the name Zendo Project and the, the actual you know, namesake and everything came into being in 2012. And at that time, it, it was being um, directed by the former director. Her name was Lene Ponte. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, she had been working at MAPS and then... Um, uh, and then started working on this project along with, um, you know, Rick and other MAP staff members and brought on a team of volunteers. And uh, so I came that first year just as a volunteer. And then Lene and I got close and connected and I got to meet um, Rick and others at MAPS. And so I, I worked with them for a number of years, started working with their training and education. And then I directed the project from 2016 to 20, uh, 2020. That's yeah. In terms of creating the curriculum, you said a lot of it was brought over from psychedelic, psychedelic assisted therapy. That's a mouthful for me for some reason. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna do it. So could you break down just a uh, high level? What does that look like uh, in terms of holding space? What does it look like to be a good listener? What does it look like if 
someone if someone is in that situation where they are trying to hold space for someone can you walk me through that a little bit yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, with Zendo Project, it's really important for us to honor our roots with um, this work. So uh, Zendo Project and MAPS, they weren't the first organization to come up with the idea for psychedelic peer support or harm reduction. Um, we can kind of look at this like in, in kind of formal peer support harm reduction, really. We saw, you know, in the 60s, there was the hog farm. I don't know if you, there's some good documentaries out there on Woodstock where you could see that, um, you know, they were trying to, to do some work there with peer support. And so, in, you know, when psychedelics first really came into the West and people were experimenting and exploring, there was a lot of intense experiences that were people were having. And so when you look back on this previous century, there's definitely, you can see a lot of examples of individuals, organizations that formed together to care for the community, right? To care for one another with a recognition that if they didn't, I think if they didn't do so, that those situations could get out of hand and that then they would be end up end up being dealt with in a less um, skillful way, right? So, so Zendo Project, I, I see as an evolution of a lot of um, groundwork that had already been done by many individuals over the years. And so by the time that, you know, Zendo Project had come around, MAPS had been um, had written the protocol, the MDMA-assisted therapy protocol. Um, and there was uh, a I think that is a very foundational protocol. So if you look at that MDMA-assisted therapy protocol, I think that a lot of um, a lot of the psychedelic-assisted therapy that we see today is influenced by that protocol. MAPS is an open science, open books organization. So from the very beginning, uh, that uh, the manual, the psychedelic-assisted therapy training manual, was out there, and so that manual was pretty influential for the Zendo Project and. Um, yeah, so a lot of what the approach is, um, whether it's with psychedelic assisted therapy or peer support, um, is that it is based in a lot of the premise of the inner healer and the idea that each of us actually has a, an inner healer or a wise part of ourselves that actually knows what we need in any given point of time. And that with um, it, uh, one of the, the tenets with psychedelic assisted therapy is that challenging experiences are just normal, right? So in psychedelic assisted therapy, you expect, similar to how you might expect in an ayahuasca ceremony, that difficult things are going to come up, they're going to arise. Um, with When you're working with, say, PTSD in a clinical trial with MDMA, you just expect that somebody's working on their PTSD, it's going to, those difficult things are going to come up, memories, thoughts, feelings, sensations. So we know that psychedelics are a catalyst potentially for healing and that that healing process brings things to the surface in order for them to be made conscious so that the person can become aware of them so that they can actively work on those things. So in a therapeutic, clinical, or even a ceremonial setting, that's sort of like it's recognized, right? Like, oh yeah, challenging. Like nobody, nobody I talk to go into like an ayahuasca ceremony and is like, yeah, I'm just expecting it to be a lot of fun. Like if you think that that's your kind of your experience, <laughs> like, oh, you might need to do your research a little bit before going, right? People know it's like, yeah, this is going to be work. This is going to be hard work. But I think what we see in the recreational environments is that somehow that isn't translating. Now, when people take psychedelics in a recreational environment, often they are just thinking, oh, I want to take some psychedelics because I hear that they're fun and I'm going to have a good time. Um, they're not often taking them with a sense of like, oh, I'm going to take psychedelics because I really want to work on my childhood trauma at this rave or Burning Man. Like I really want that 
you know, and, and that's shifting. More people are becoming aware of that and using it for healing purposes in all types of settings. But I think that, um, so one of the foundational premises of this work of psychedelic peer support is that challenging experiences are not the problem. That's just what happens when psychedelics catalyze a process. The issue is that in the specific container that is recreational settings, um, that thread is lost. And so what happens is that people in their psychedelic experience will hit up against challenging moments because that's the nature of psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And then they will, because they're not in a container that feels safe, then they will start to, we could say spiral out, right? They start to feel like, oh, I can't bring whatever's coming up. This is scary. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know how to work with this. And so then when they start to have that fear, then they start to resist the experience. And one thing that we know with psychedelics is that what, regardless of what place you take them in, if you resist the experience, it's going to get even harder. So usually people who come to us are coming from that place of something's come up, they haven't known how to deal with it, it's their defenses have, have come up, and then they're getting more and more scared, and somebody brings them to us or they come to us, and then we just really work to create an environment where they can let go, surrender to the experience, and receive the support of a volunteer and those volunteers are, um, I'll pause, but those volunteers are trained in a variety of, you know, skills and approaches to then work with that person, which foundationally really, it's just a lot of listening and helping the person to stay safe. I love that. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, yeah there's, a, there's a lot there and thank you for sharing that and bringing context to everything. There's a couple of things you touched on that I think was beautiful is, is one about this, inner healer, the fact that we know what we need on a, on a super deep level. There's something that can guide us through the process, but there's also this situation that I think that the, some of the truth truths, just take a step back here, is two opposites being held at the same time, right? Like we are both an individual speck of nothingness and we're also a grand part of the cosmos and one with everything. Uh, we are uh, an individual that wants to be autonomous and free, but we also want to be accepted by the community. And the, one of the biggest issues that we have here when we talk about this, I feel something within that I have shame or guilt I'm trying to repress or hold into is it can create this huge turmoil. And it's almost like holding balloons underneath the water and you're just pressing them down, trying to hold them out. But then when you take psychedelics, those balloons start to rise at the surface and you're trying to catch them and they're going everywhere. And there's that, there's that fear, that shame, that guilt that you have about bringing up, especially if you go to try to talk to somebody and they handle it, uh, would you say, uh, without tact uh, in a in a non-compassionate way, we'll say. And what I love about this is so you're creating a container to say, hey, just no matter where you go on this journey, if you just embrace it and you lean, you lean into the experience versus lean away, then you can just ride through it so much more smoothly versus resisting the thing and having it persist, persist as it goes through you. So what I love about that is um, the, the addressing the shame, the guilt and making a, a safe space where, cause we all get it. And it's very hard if like, Oh man, you're killing my buzz. Like if you're, that's not like the, the, the spot to really have this. Uh, so this is, this is great. And I do have a question and I'm going to go a little, I'll go a little woo woo for a second. Then we're going to pull it back. Uh, so my little woo-woo for a second is just around the inner healer. Do you feel, what are your thoughts around this is um, I had a, 
recently had a, a podcast guest on who just kind of hurt my brain to try to have a conversation with him because he was too damn smart. Um, his name is Donald Hoffman, a neuroscientist from USC, wrote a book, A Case Against Reality. And he's saying, he's like, look, physical reality and time is not real. It's all just consciousness connecting to consciousness. And we are just consciousness experiencing each other. And we're inside consciousness that is just making up time and space. And he's a neuroscientist. There's no, it was all, and I'm like, this sounds like a mystical experience. Um, are we sure we're still talking about science? He goes, yes. And he had a bunch of scientific facts to prove it. I'm not going to quote him, but needless to say, that's what it is. And in the areas that you're dabbling on both the science side of things and in the uh, psychedelic side of spaces and in this space, do you believe in terms of the inner healer? Is there something that the inner knowing, is that coming from us? Or do you think that's coming from some sort of outside consciousness for that we're all connected to? What are your, what are your thoughts around that? Hmm. Yeah, well, I love that you're getting woo. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, all out myself, I'm pretty woo. I'm a transpersonal counseling, you know, yeah. like, that's my focus. I folk, I look at spirituality, I like to explore, you know, altered states and how altered states can help connect, connect us to spirituality. So when you look at kind of like psychedelic science and research, I'm much more on the that end of things than, you know, the more, um, you could say, the, I mean, that's what I love, though, about this guy that you're talking about, because he's bridging both, right? Yes. Science. Yeah. And that's what I think we're seeing so much of is like, yeah, the science is finally, it's finally um, catching up to what I think, um, what I think a lot of cultures have been aware of once again, for a long time, where um, we have to kind of use science to kind of prove what, you know, I think a lot of cultures have known for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, uh, specifically to your question, um, yeah, it's great. I mean, I think to begin, I have no idea, right? None of That's us really fair. know. Yeah, That's fair. And so um, just give that disclaimer. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that it's been really wild over the past, you know, 10 years to just see so many people in these psychedelic states. And, you know, the quote that you started giving from, I'm um, sorry, what was his name, David? Uh, Donald Hoffman, Donald Case Against Hoffman. Reality. Yeah. No, the, like what he's saying and how he's saying it sounds also so much like what somebody would be shouting on LSD, right? Like, totally. or what some of the mystics throughout time and history. And was. I asked him, I said, is this from a psychedelic experience? He goes, no, this is from neuroscience. I go, mm, okay, all right. Yeah, exactly. It's also like Hafiz and Rumi, you know, like the mystics throughout time. And yeah. so, yeah, I think that that is one of the spaces that people can connect to on psychedelics is this sense of, you know, that there, that our consciousness is really all one, right? When we talk about all one and we talk about oneness, which is such a phenomenon that the psychedelic experiences, people feeling like um, it, it's so beyond our ability to comprehend outside of, you know, typically an altered state. And there's many ways to alter our reality that's not psychedelics, right? Like um, Buddhists have been talking about this phenomenon for, you know, thousands of years. And so, um, yeah, this idea that, you know, that we are um, connected, that we're all connected, that we're all one. Um, and so I think that when you when we're talking about consciousness and what's within and what's without, right? Like what is us? What is me versus what is something outside of me? Um, I tend, yeah, I tend to first of all just just love 
that the, the mystery, like I said, that none of us know. And I do think that one of the things that I've seen in psychedelic experiences and that I've witnessed others is really that connection to, oh, it's all one thing, right? That actually my consciousness is connected to the greater collective consciousness and also to the consciousness of the planet. And so, yeah, it's hard to say what's within and what's, you know, and what's without um, or yeah, what's outside of us. Um, but I, I do think that when people really touch into this inner wisdom, what I can say is that it feels very profound. And, um, and I know that, you know, my colleagues working with MDMA therapy will say often a similar thing, which is that the inner healer is intact, regardless of what's happened to somebody. So when we think about trauma and the impact of trauma, um, what I've seen in working with people with PTSD is that um, that the inner healer is always there. It's always they're able to access it. Um, and the MDMA can help us access it, but it's always there. It's not like the MDMA causes it or it's the, a drug effect. I truly believe that the MDMA helps us to unlock a latent thing that is already there and help people connect in with this. And, in, and when that happens, whether it's in the Zendo space um, or it's in uh, you know, the, the work with, with MDMA, it feels like a very profound, deep knowing. Yeah. And I think that that is a consistent experience around uh, across different psychedelics is like a deep knowing and an almost like a sense of things being truer than, than truth, right. Or a reality being more real than our, so to speak, consensus, like our consensus reality. Right. Yeah, it, it's interesting too because you talk about that. It almost reminds me of the the Buddhist philosophy of the like everything is okay, even if things aren't okay, it's okay. And there's this consciousness that's always observing. Like you are not your thoughts, you are not your feelings, you are not those things. You are this this consciousness that is witnessing and experiencing this. And uh, Donald Hoffman, I liked it to the point of putting on a VR headset and you're experiencing life through this VR headset. When you but you are not you are not the player in the game. You are the thing that is experiencing this reality, experiencing this life. And there is a truth that uh, for anybody who's um, experienced these other other types of um, realities or whatever you want to call them, it, there is that truth, that deep fundamental, everything's okay and we are all connected. And that sense of, and it's funny because like we all kind of, it seems always we are, goes back to that unity. We are all one at the base level of things, which is a very interesting place. And when you get there, when you actually experience it, not just logically read it on an Instagram post as you scroll across 10 other posts along the day, but you actually get that deep sensation and you anchor that anchor that in, it, it, there is a sense of just peace, a sense of, you know, and is there a way with, like through these experiences that you've given, um, have you seen pathways to help people uncover that truth through the inner healing process? Is there ways to do active guiding or is it something that they have to kind of come across on their own? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, there's different, um, there's different approaches that I might take with someone in a peer support setting versus a therapy setting. Yeah. But I do think that, um, that there's also some, there's definitely also some overlap. And what I'll say is that a lot of it is about getting out of the way as the helper. So whether it's as the therapist or the healer, the, the peer supporter, the guide, whatever you want to call it, right? There's a lot of different ways and contexts that you can like work with someone on psychedelics. 
a lot of it is getting out of the way and helping to really put the focus on the person, right? So um, essentially one of the ways that that looks is not providing all the answers. So oftentimes when people are in a psychedelic state, especially if they're afraid, they might ask you a lot of questions, right? And some of those questions might be, you know, that's good to answer them. Where's the restroom? <laughs> am I okay? You know, am I, am I, um, but then there's like these deeper existential questions that come up, right? And so sometimes, for instance, if somebody asks me, am I safe, right? Um, that's a big question, right? So we can have, we can make sure that they are physically safe. We can make sure that, you know, that they are in a, in a place where they are less likely to harm themselves. We make sure we always are working with the medical people on site to make sure that they're actually medically safe, right? Because mm -hmm. we, want, we always want to make sure that someone is actually, and you know, it's actually an emotional psychological experience. That's one thing we don't have to worry about as much in the research, even though we're, you know, we're definitely tracking vitals, but we know what we gave the person, yeah, right? Yeah. And we, we've monitored them and they've gone through a screening process. Whereas when somebody comes to you in a, a recreational state, you have no idea what they've taken. They could have taken things that were adulterated. So oh, anyway, yeah. back to this piece. So sure. you're, we're tracking all of those things and making sure that we're doing what we can to ensure their physical, psychological, emotional safety. But am I safe? Is like a also a really big existential question. Are any of us safe? You know, this is a harsh, crazy world, and at the same time, we're all one and everything's okay, right? So it's like to me when I'm working with someone who might be asking a lot of questions, then I really just want to create the space to, um, you know really invite them that, that they have the answers, that I'm there to, to create space to support them. I'm there to listen. I'm there to be an ally um, and, you know, to, to support them in their experience, bring them things to help them feel safe, water, snack, blanket, right? Um, <laughs> but ultimately, I'm not the, the one that's going to do the healing. Mm. And I the, the medicine itself, it's really important. And we tell people this with MDMA therapy, it's not the medicine, it's the inner healer, right? So the, the medicine is helping to create access to that, as I said. And so I think that um, where we get into trouble is people, I think, um, who maybe, you know, don't have the foundational skills as, and who want to work with these medicines who are coming in and like, I'm the I'm the healer, I'm the guide, and I'm going to help this, you know, person. And it's like, actually, your job is to really get out of the way and help. Mm -hmm. And that's how you can best help the healing happen. And there's a lot of questions, a lot of things that you can do to do that. But at its core, so much of what I'm doing as a as a therapist or as a peer support provider is centering the experience of the individual, um, mm -hmm. uh, facilitating a deepening of their own internal inquiry process yeah. with themselves, helping them you know, to support them in feeling their emotions, because so much of the experience is not just mental, it's somatic, it's emotional, and getting out of the, getting out of the way, yeah. right? Not pretending that I have the answers, or I, we're all just figuring it out here. I'm not some, you know, like, <laughs> you're just, you're just like, okay, you're, you're helping the edges, they got to walk the path, you're just, you're just putting the edges on for them. And, and with all that you're doing here, with the work with maps, with the Zendo project, with the, all of the studies and the times and the countless hours you put into this, what's your what's your holy grail? What's your flag in the sand? What do you hope to achieve with all the effort that you've put into this time? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to say it's been magical to see how like the Zendo project's work has been so much a community effort. 
And so, you know, there's been different directors at different times. There's been different people working on the project. Um, but I think that from the beginning, the work with Zendo has always been a community pro program. We're always bringing in, it's a, a bunch of, you know, volunteers and staff where it's the center is, you know, the focus is on the community. And what I've seen is that the Zendo project has really um, helped to bring people together to support each other. And like a lot of the ways that people are approaching even challenging experiences, I've seen change in the zeitgeist in the, in the, of the, of the culture. And I think that Zendo has helped to plant some of those seeds. So for instance, you know, one of our principles, we have four guiding principles and one of them is difficult is not the same as bad. Um, and that idea, people often, you know, the idea with that is that people often say a bad trip and we've been trying to reframe it as like, it's, when you say something's bad, it's not a lot of room to work with it. So we really wanted to reframe that as difficult. And I see that as changing. People now start to talk about difficult experiences instead of bad trips. And so I feel like it's planted a lot of little seeds, but at the end of the day, I think it's been the ability to see community come together to support one another. And the idea that, um, yeah, that we're all just walking each other home, you know, the idea that we're all just supporting each other through this uh, experience of life. And so to me, to have contributed to that in any way has been, um, you know, to me that I, it's been incredibly rewarding and, and meaningful and, and brought a deep sense of purpose to my life. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I love the thing. Difficult is not the same thing as bad. As I, as I take my daily cold showers in the morning, I remind <laughs> myself of this. So I was like, this is a gift. This is a gift. This is a <laughs> yeah. Clenching various body parts, not freeze death. Totally. Totally. It's a gift. <laughs> I love it. Um, it's beautiful. So um, if really it is you know, the community coming together to all collaboratively walk everybody home and, and to really get that mindset of difficult is not the same thing as bad. What is the dragon? What is the thing that's so difficult to overcome in order for you to facilitate this and make this happen? Mm, like in, in the culture, like the things yeah, that the culture, are. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I mean, I think that. Similar to MAPS, so Zendo Project recently spun off into its own organization. So now it's officially, it's it, it's launched in the world. It's a, becoming an adult. And so after 10 years of being um, a project within MAPS, has now become its own nonprofit. Um, the new director, uh, uh, the, yeah, Chelsea Rose, she's been working with the project for a number of years. And so it's going to, you know, as it becomes its own entity out there, its own being, um, it's a really big growth point, you know, for it. I think it's very different to be operating peer support under with MAPS versus becoming its own organization. But I think that um, I think that some of the challenges are very similar to some of the challenges that MAPS has faced. In that, when you're pioneering new work in the world that hasn't been done in quite that way before. Um, what happens is that you come up against challenges that you couldn't have predicted and that haven't been solved. They're problems that haven't been solved. So I think a lot of the challenges that MAPS has faced, I think a lot of the challenges that Zender Project has faced is because they're doing something that hasn't been done before. And so um, that in and of itself, you know, that's what we call, you know, when we call that pioneering work, it's like when you do pioneering work in anything, you're going to be the ones that learn the lessons the hardest, you know, you're, you're going to be the ones that like, um, you know, end up having to learn things so that other people who come after can benefit from that. It's kind of like what you're talking about with mentorship earlier. Yeah. And so I think that it's like, yeah, the there's definitely external challenges, right? There's there's the 
what we talked about at the beginning of of the recording there's like the all of the the legal stuff and the um you know the regulation and all of that and scheduling of these substances and that's really that is really core that's like another podcast that we'll have to do <laughs> but um, <laughs> You know, so I won't go too far down that rabbit hole, but you know, that's a, the external thing. So there's external things that, that we're dealing with related to this long war on drugs. And um, so that's challenging. And then uh, that makes it really difficult. It has made it really difficult to bring these services uh, to a larger scale, right? Because there's, um, there's still so much stigma. And so we're still working with that, even though a lot has changed over the past 10 years, we're still working with that. And then I think the internal challenge of just having problems and things that you have to navigate as the first people to navigate that. And that's just something that I think comes with pioneer, you know, any work that's being pioneered. Yeah. So you have the external and you have the social cultural zeitgeist and you have the internal work that needs to get done. That's, that's yeah. yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And you're right. That'd be a whole other podcast that we could totally get into. So I completely agree. So we, we cross that bridge when we get to that one. Um, with that being said, it's been awesome having you on. Um, is there anything else you'd like to let people know about before you tell them how to get a hold of you? Hmm. Yeah, um, I think that oftentimes people are really interested in, you know, learning how to get involved with this work. Um, so, you know, as Under Project becomes its own organization now, I know that they're still planning on doing Burning Man. Um, so, uh, and they also offer educational opportunities and workshops. And so a good way to, um, stay in touch is to go to zendoproject.org and to sign up for the email newsletter. Mm -hmm. In that newsletter, you'll get all of the updates on how to stay connected to the project and um, volunteer opportunities and education opportunities. So yeah, I just encourage people to stay connected. Um, we also have a Facebook page and um, Instagram page as well. Beautiful. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an honor and a pleasure. I appreciate all the good work that you're doing, all the good work that Zendo and Maps is doing. So thank you so much for your time. Have a beautiful and blessed day. And I'll see you thank on the you. other side. Right. Thank you. See you Take on the care. other side. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Are you interested in using disruptive technology like ChatGPT AI and virtual reality to help your business to generate more revenue and create greater impact? If so, go to heroesofreality.com to take the Heroes quiz to unlock your potential as a purpose-driven entrepreneur. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the other side.